what I'm going to share with you guys today is about the resurrection of Christ. And I have a PowerPoint because I'm going to give you a lot of information, and it helps to see it while you're hearing it said. just helps us to digest that a little bit better. Now, around Easter every year, our, our friends at the History Channel, National Geographic, and PBS like to put out documentaries attacking the, the faith of Christians everywhere, saying that Jesus, did Jesus really exist, and things like this that are, um, in the end, just totally bunk, like they're not factually true, they're not historically accurate, but for people whose only exposure to Jesus is the History Channel, PBS, and National Geographic, they're in trouble. And for us as Christians, we want to sort of prepare ourselves for the culture we live in. These are the attacks that are coming. These are the things that are coming down upon us and that people will hit us with. You know how you go to witness to someone and they they vaguely recall to you some distorted version of something they saw that one time on that YouTube video? And you're like, what are you even talking? But in other words, we need to just be equipped that we might share the truth of Christ. So what I want to do is not just talk about the resurrection. Pastor Gary will be doing that as we get closer to Easter. I want to talk to you about evidence for the resurrection of Christ. This is what I'm interested in, is the evidence. Because believe it or not, there is a mountain of good evidence supporting the fact that Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, physically rose from the dead, and appeared to his disciples later. There is an abundance of good evidence. I'm going to share some of that stuff with you today. The resurrection is very important. It's, it's extremely important. Christianity itself, our faith, is based on an historical event. So it's not faith based on faith, like believe it because you should believe it because you should believe it with this like circular sort of nonsense going around, but rather it's based on an actual historical event. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's completely central to what we believe as Christians. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19 says this. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. That means doesn't work. Right? You're futile. It doesn't have its intended effect. It means that when I die, nothing. Or I go somewhere I don't want to go. But I'm not going to heaven. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're just gone. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. It is the saddest thing to have this huge, huge hope. I have the biggest hope in all of creation. If it's not true, oh, how pitiable am I? But it is. Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus stand or fall together. If Jesus rose, Christianity's true. If he didn't, it's false. That's exciting to me. Because here's a point of testing that we can apply, you know, and, uh, and we're going to do that today. The resurrection is also totally unique. It's totally unique. Christianity, it's not even remotely true that all religions are the same. If they were, we would all just do the same stuff and worship the same ways and believe the same things. But we don't. The resurrection is totally unique. No other religion has a historical claim like ours at its base and evidence to support it. Let me give you some examples from Hindu, from Islam, and from Mormonism. When they're tested, they all fall short of the facts. Actually, Hindu writings say that the earth has a mountain in the middle of its continents that is 252,000 miles high. This is what Hindu claims are. Now, you probably don't know this because you've probably never read Hindu writings, but it's there. This is part of the Hindu claims. Did you know that the moon is 238,000 miles away? So the moon would probably run into this mountain. It's that big. We could actually just climb to the moon. 
We wouldn't need space shuttles anymore. We could just take a shuttle. (laughs) The diameter of the entire Earth from equator to equator is about 8,000 miles. It just shows you how preposterous this this like needle shooting up into into space would be. Well, that's Hindu writings. In the Quran, the Muslim holy book, the Quran, it teaches that the sun sets on the earth in a pool of mud. Now that's a testable claim, is it not? We can go look around and check all the pools of mud and discover that that's not what happens. It actually goes on to say that Alexander the Great was the one who found the place where the sun sets and people were living there in a pool of mud. I mean, reading the Quran is the best way to to not be Muslim. Um, It's just like, okay, this is silliness. This was written by someone who just didn't know. It wasn't inspired of God. It's so unlike the Bible. The Book of Mormon teaches that Native Americans are primarily descended from Jews. Really? It teaches that that Jews left Israel, Israel, that area, before the time of Jesus. Before Jesus, they left Israel and they came to the United States of America, where we now have the U.S., and they propagated and produced a whole bunch of people, and this is where the Native Americans came from. Now, we know scientifically this isn't true. DNA, in fact, has even proven it wrong, that that's not where the connection is. Now, when you teach untruths as though they're true, that's called lying. So don't be like, Mike, you're being rude to those other religions. No, they're being rude to you. They're lying. The question is, what about Christianity? Christianity's major historical claim is the resurrection of Jesus, but it is historically supported, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, either bust out your pencil or your pillow, whichever one's appropriate for you, because to show that Jesus is alive, we only need to look at five historical facts. I'm going to, I'm going to go for, are you from what I do know to what I don't know, right? So let's suppose we don't know if Jesus is resurrected. Well, let's start with what we do know. Kind of like if I called you and I said, where are you? And you said, I'm at my house. And then I drive by your house and I see your car at your house in the parking lot. And then I look in the window and I see a silhouette that looks just like you. And then I check the GPS on your phone because I stalk you. And then it says, you're where? At your house. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put these four facts together and make one conclusion. You are... At your house. That's, that's how we go from what we don't know to what we do know, right? So we're going to look at these five historical facts. The first one's going to be a death by crucifixion. The second one is that ladies find the tomb empty. The third is that there are independent appearances of Jesus alive after death. The fourth and fifth, violence endured by the apostles and the enemies of Christ converted. So these are five facts. I'll go over each one point by point. If you're a note taker, you'll want to write these down. If I don't give you enough time to write it down at the moment, I'll go over each one, and you'll be able to write them down as I do. Um, These five facts lead us to one inescapable conclusion, that Jesus is alive. And these are not controversial. Let me start out by saying this. If I got a group of historians together who are scholars in ancient history, and I asked them, did Was there a death by crucifixion? Did ladies find the tomb empty? Were there independent appearances of Jesus alive after his death? Um, was, was there genuinely violence endured by the apostles? Were enemies of Christ truly converted by saying they saw Jesus alive from the dead? They would all answer yes. It would be a unanimous yes. This is not controversy. This isn't like special Christian history. This is just what happened. So, now I'm going to show you how cute I am. <laughs> not literally, but... Okay, so number one is a death by crucifixion. Two is ladies find the tomb empty. Three is independent appearances. Four is violence endured by the apostles, and five is the enemies of Christ converted. Now, um, 
I, that's just to help you remember. It's a memory aid to give you alive, A-L-I-V-E. Um, and hopefully that will help. So number one, a death by crucifixion. Let's talk about that. Jesus um, being crucified. Now, Mel Gibson got a lot of flack because when they made this Passion of the Christ movie, um, it was so violent and Jesus was so uh, horrible looking. And they said, that's not right. Because in the Renaissance paintings, of course, Jesus looks pretty much fine. He, you, no matter how much beating he's received, there's just one drop of blood. Um, but in all reality, Jesus probably looked worse than what was portrayed in the Mel Gibson film. His crucifixion was vicious and brutal, and it killed him, uh, most certainly. To understand the evidence for the resurrection, we have to first consider how he died, his crucifixion. What happened to Jesus? Did he really die? Um, well, the first thing that happens is torture. Crucifixion doesn't start with nails and wood. It starts with beatings and abuse. He was taken all night and traipsed around from court to court and accused of different things. He was beaten in multiple locations from multiple different people. He was beaten with a bag over his head so he couldn't see the blows coming, so they would hit him full force. Um, and then he was, of course, taking the Roman beating with the flagrum, with the flagellum, some people call it. But this weapon is a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. And the design of the weapon is to beat you. It's meant to grab onto flesh and then rip the flesh off as the weapon is pulled away from your back um, or wherever part of your body it hits. It caused deep bruises that would break open with continual hits and pieces of bone and leather would, would tear and cut against the flesh. It was, it was a vicious thing. I'm not trying to, to, to turn your stomachs, but our Lord went through this and it is central to our faith and so we have to talk about it. This is an example of, of a, one such weapon. And so you can see that, you know, there was heavy metal balls that would be swung, and then they would dig in, and then they'd rip it away. Um, some people say Jesus only experienced, uh, what was it, 29 lashes, 30 minus 1, because that was Jewish for mercy. Uh, but he wasn't beaten by the Jews in this case. He was beaten by the Romans. Um, there wasn't a number associated with it. Um, but when he was beaten, it was so bad that it sped up his death on the cross. They actually called this beating, it was called the half-death, because the Romans would sometimes actually kill the person who was doing it, but frequently they would go to the crucifixion already half dead. So that's the first thing that Jesus experienced. Then he was crucified, put on the cross. Now, Romans had taken this act of persecution that was, if I remember right, it was invented by the Persians, and then they were adapting it and changing crucifixion, tweaking it here and there so that it would become worse. It was, it was, a, it was a torture to death execution. That was what it was meant to be. It was meant to just really mess you up in public so that everyone looks at the crucified victim and goes, I am not messing with Rome. I am not messing with Rome, and that's why it happened the way it did. They did it to terrorize their enemies. One of the things that they did, well, they put the nails through the hands. Now, Jesus probably had the nail through his wrist, and you might say, well, Mike, but the Bible says hands. Actually, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word hand, that's translated hand in your Bible, it represents everything from above the elbow to the fingertip. So that's in Greek and Hebrew, they're the same word. We don't have an equivalent word for that in English. What word do I use to describe from here to here? Not forearm, because that wouldn't be the hand part too, it, it, so they just say hands. But the nails probably went here and here. That's how they would typically do it. Then, then uh, it, would, it would hold and anchor well. But also, you have a nerve right here. How many of you guys, you, 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 you were one of those kids that would go around doing pressure points on their friends? There's one here, you grab and squeeze this the right way in the wrist. That's the median nerve. And the nail would actually be hanging and pushing your body weight onto the median nerve between the nail and the bone. So that every moment on the cross was uh, the smashing of that pressure point, from, not from outside, but from inside the hand. Pretty intense. Pretty intense. Then there was, of course, the nails in his heels. 
Now, let me give you an example of the type of scholarship that comes against the Bible in this case. Um, There was a guy named Dr. J.W. Hewitt, and he had a Harvard Theological Review article, which is kind of a big deal, right? And he wrote it. It was called The Use of Nails in Crucifixion. He studied nail use in crucifixion. His conclusion was, there is astonishingly little evidence that the feet of a crucified person were ever pierced by nails. Ever. Now, this is the kind of stuff you get on the PBS and the National Geographic, because they never are going to interview Christians. They're going to interview secular, non-believing historians and things like this. Um, So this is the kind of stuff you'll hear. So the implication is that the Bible is false and misleading, that the Bible has lied to us about Jesus' crucifixion. And then as a Christian, you go, well, if it's not true, it's not true. Why would I follow it? But in June 1968, the Israeli Department of Antiquities and Museums discovered four cave tombs just north of Jerusalem. In Ossuary 4, which is like a, a box about this big, about as big as the femur, the biggest bone in the body, they put the bones of somebody in there, In uh, tomb number one, they found an adult male who had a seven-inch spike driven through both of his heels, and his shins had been broken. He was a crucifixion victim, and it was exactly as described in the scriptures, exactly, even to the point of the broken shins if they wanted to speed up the death. Here's a picture of what they found, and you can see it's kind of old. Here's a recreation next to, the, next to the original. So they drove the nails through, and it was, uh, he was held there. Also, um, his shoulders would be dislocated. On the cross, uh, you're, you're being pulled out this way because you can't continue holding all your body weight on your legs for that long. So after a while, your, your, your body weight gets held by the nails in your arms. And this would pull the arms out, and then they dislocated about three inches per arm. they come out of their sockets. Um, just like Psalm 22 says, all my bones are out of joint. Psalm 22 describes crucifixion before it was invented. That's pretty amazing to me. 400 years before it was invented, Psalm 22 describes what happens. Um, So the shoulders would be dislocated. And then here's a question that you might have is, how exactly did crucifixion actually kill somebody? Because the nails wouldn't necessarily kill somebody. What killed them? Well, the crucified victim can't exhale without standing up, without pushing up on those nails. See, because as their arms are being pulled out, their lungs are being opened. You know when you're coughing and you do this to help yourself breathe better? It opens your lungs. The lungs are forced into an open position. And then, in order to exhale, they have to push up and let their arms come down a little bit. So, and then, and this, this process would be going on while on the cross. This is why, if they wanted to speed up the death, they would break the shins stopping them from having the ability to push up and, in, and uh, exhale so they would die by asphyxiation. It'd suffocate, basically. This horrible, torturous experience is why we have the word excruciating today. Oh, it was excruciating pain. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. It was just horrific. Then, on top of all of that, to make sure Jesus was dead, they had a spear shoved through his side And they killed him, and blood and water poured out, it says. Now, the Roman soldiers, they were familiar with dead bodies. Now, most of us in our culture today, we're not very familiar with this, and nor nor do we want to be, to be honest. Those of us who've seen, as I have, a loved one pass away, there's an immediate change. And it's amazing how fast it happens, that the the three mortises start to set in. Um, The bruising starts to set in, the the, the skin changes, the body changes, everything changes. And it happens very quickly. It's actually a huge difference between a sleeping person and a dead body. 
And the Romans knew this. So they looked and they said, Jesus is dead. We can tell. We see the evidence. But just to be sure, they pierced him through with a spear through his side and blood and water poured out. Now this is interesting because if you were making up a story about Jesus being pierced, you wouldn't say blood and water poured out because that didn't make sense to anybody back then. We didn't know until recently with modern medicine what this might be. It seems like it could be one of two things. Either the pericardium, the water sacker on the heart, was pierced and that poured out, or there was water gathering in the lungs as a result of the intense beating and the shock that his body was going through. Either way, blood and water being poured out meant a guaranteed death. A guaranteed death. Interestingly, new or early church writers would write about the water and blood, and they tried to figure out, like they're going, well, why? Why water and blood? They didn't know that this meant that. So they just tried to, like, maybe it was like an allegory for something about water and, you know, and they tried to figure things out. But, uh, but it just was a guarantee that Jesus was dead on the cross. Jesus was definitely dead. We definitely have a deceased Jesus. He was then covered in about 75 pounds or more of spices. He was buried in a tomb. And uh, we're not going to read through this passage, but Matthew 27 tells us about security measures the Romans took to make sure he stays in the tomb. They wanted to make sure he does not get out of that tomb. So they did four things. One, they put him in a solid rock tomb with no way out. There's no back door. There's no escape hatch, okay? Um, They also rolled a stone that would have been one and a half to two tons into place. Now, these stones would be, would be set up on a slightly uh, elevated plane in like a, think of it like a gutter that would run in front of the, the tomb. But they would roll it, and then it would poof, fall downward into place. So there it falls into place. Um, that also to make sure no one could get in there. Um, also, they put a seal on it. And the seal was like a Roman seal, a soft, moldable, like clay-type substance with the, the, the seal of the Roman government on there. If you mess with this seal without authority, guess what happens? You die. Like, this is, you're dead. This, you get the death penalty for this. And the fourth thing is they gave him a Roman guard. Pilate said, go ahead, you have a guard. Make sure the tomb is sealed and secured. And so they guarded over the tomb, these guards. They were there when the tomb was opened. They saw what they saw. Um, they probably had closer to 16 men because it was the, the hoity-toity Pharisees. and you know They were important people in society, and they were the ones with the guards. So it's probably a larger guard. And if they had lost the body or fallen asleep on post, the penalty for the Romans was death. You don't fall asleep on post. Even nowadays in our military, we have strict penalties for those who sleep when they're on watch because you can be responsible for the deaths of everybody. So this actually, sorry, this... Uh, Sometimes it double clicks, but it actually helps our case. All these things, the more sure they make it that you can't get the body of Jesus, the more it guarantees that he was buried and he was there and that he didn't just get stolen. So do we see these things outside the Bible? Because someone, I'm sure someone's here right now going, yeah, but Mike, you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible. No, please think a little bit more about this. I'm not. What we're doing is we're using ancient historical documents to try to figure out what happened 2,000 years ago. The Bible is a group of ancient historical documents independent of one another, and they agree on these issues. But in addition to that, we see this outside the Bible. There is first century non-Christian historian sources that we have, like Josephus, the Roman historian, who said the following. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. 
Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. See, Josephus was not a Christian by any means. He didn't believe in Jesus. He saw Christians as this weird sect of Judaism. And he was like, "Ah, maybe he was the Messiah. But he confirms central facts. Jesus was crucified. It was under Pontius Pilate. They claimed that he appeared to them after his crucifixion. They confirmed the existence of Jesus. This from a non-Christian source. What motive would he have? you know, for saying something untrue about that. Tacitus is another historian who also references Jesus. So you sometimes get like, well, you only have Jesus from the Bible. And you're like, no, you only have your information from YouTube. That's the problem. In the Jewish uh, Talmud, it also references Jesus. The Jewish Talmud, which was anti-Christian, they say that the body of Jesus was stolen by the disciples. Now, this is a hostile source, right? Come on, PowerPoint, work with me here. This is a hostile source. The Talmud's like, we don't believe in Christians. We're going to make sure everything we say about him is skewed so you don't believe in Jesus. But what they do say admits to certain facts, doesn't it? It admits that there was a Jesus. He was crucified. He was buried. His tomb was empty. The disciples did proclaim that he rose from the dead, but their confusion or conclusion would be they stole the body. Do you get that? So we can gather the evidence and go, okay, certain things are true about this. The crucifixion of Jesus really, truly happened. It's firmly established, and New Testament historians are convinced. All of them. They're all convinced. You may have heard people going, well, I don't think Jesus really existed. These are the same people that like, deny the Holocaust. Like, this is just, there's no intelligence behind these statements. They're, they're really unwise. They're laughed at in historical circles. Even hardcore atheists who hate Christianity laugh at these people. John Mayer, he is the preeminent historical scholar today, referring to Jesus. He says this, For two obvious reasons, practically no one today would deny that Jesus was executed by crucifixion. This central event is recorded or alluded to in not only by the vast majority of New Testament authors, but also by Josephus and Tacitus. Such an embarrassing event created a major obstacle to converting Jews and Gentiles alike that the church struggled to overcome. It was embarrassing that their Savior had been crucified. People were like, I'm not following your crucified Savior. He lost. It was considered, and now historians, they call, it's what they call the criterion of embarrassment. And it, the idea is, if you say something embarrassing about yourself, I'm going to believe it. But if you say something wonderful about yourself, I'm not so sure. And it's the same for me. If I told you, hey guys, here's the most embarrassing moment of my life, you're going to believe it. Because I'm ashamed while telling you. What if I go, here's the best thing I've ever done? You're like, yeah, right. And so it was embarrassing to the disciples. Several elements of this were embarrassing. And that, that just simply um, reasserts the historical value. It may have hurt them at the time, but it helps us today. That was in the Journal of Biblical Literature. Okay, so we looked at number one. Now let's look at number two. Number two, the second fact. Ladies find the tomb empty. It's important that the tomb was found empty. It's also important that it was women who found it that way. Let me read to you the story. Luke 24, verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they'd prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. As it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Gal- still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day, rise again. 
And they remembered his words, finally. Oh, he meant it. (laughs) And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words to them were like wonderful truths, and they immediately received them because women are so well respected in ancient Israel. Oh, I may have misread that. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. It's embarrassing that women found the tomb empty. Embarrassing to the, uh, the, ma- the man-centered views that they had at the time. But it's actually helpful to us today. Ladies find the tomb empty. They were the first ones to find the tomb. They were the first ones from the other passages to see Jesus alive. They're unlikely witnesses, and this hurt the credibility of the story big time. They were mocked by their contemporaries because, oh, well, women found your tomb empty. You're going to believe them? Because you know how women are. That's not what I'm saying. That's what they said. Like, I I would never say that because I know how women are. (laughs) So they were mocked at the time. The disciples didn't even believe them. They didn't even believe them. And they're recording it. This is all embarrassing stuff. This just strengthens the case for the historicity of the empty tomb. It really, really does. A Jewish lie never would have started this way. It would have been some prominent Jewish figure. It would have been Nicodemus. It would have been um, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich guy. It would have been Peter who discovered the tomb empty. It would not have been the women. So... Number three, independent appearances of Jesus alive after death. So we have his death, we have the ladies finding the tomb, and now we have number three, independent appearances of Jesus alive after death. Here's a photograph, actual photo, of the event while it took place. All they had at the time was, um, was those, uh, those Polaroids at the time. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Anyways, it's funny how they make them all look Jewish except Jesus. He doesn't look Jewish at all. That's so weird. So, but most of our artwork about Jesus comes from, from uh, Renaissance times, and they were very anti-Jewish, and so they purposely misrepresented what happened in the scriptures. So we have to kind of take it with a grain of salt when you see these weird pictures of Jesus. He looks like a floating girl, and it's like, okay. But anyhow, here, here's an appearance of Jesus, uh, supposedly, to his disciples. Let's read in 1 Corinthians 15 this passage about Jesus appearing to several different people at different times under different circumstances. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now what follows is a creed. It's actually formulated by the language and the, and the, the sort of like flow of it all. This is a creed, kind of like we sang earlier in, in the song, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. That's a creed, you can tell by the way it's written. This is as well. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Paul is claiming independent, multiple independent experiences of seeing Jesus. Now, why do I use 1 Corinthians 15? I could go to lots of places in the Bible for this, right? Because this is probably the oldest piece of your entire New Testament. This creed, 1 Corinthians is a very old letter. 
older than the Gospels, actually. Then this creed, this part of 1 Corinthians 15, is actually even older than that because he's delivering to them what he first also received. This, by scholars and textual critics, they date this passage to within five years of the crucifixion. You cannot say it was all made up 150, 200 years later because it provably was not. Safely dated within five years of the crucifixion. That's, that's really significant, okay? So now I'm just saying these people claimed they saw Jesus. Lots of individuals said they saw Jesus. Let's, let's look at some examples of these. Number one, the women disciples. In Matthew 28, you can read about it. They see Jesus alive after death. They report it. They're not believed. But yet it's historically understood this happened. They, they experienced something where they thought they saw Jesus, and then they tried to tell people about it. They not only saw him, but they physically interacted with him. They grabbed his feet and worshipped him, and he was like, don't, don't touch me. Actually, it's, it's in the Greek. It's like, don't cling to me. He's like, you can touch me, but don't, you know, I gotta go. I have things to do. Because you can imagine, if you saw him, you'd be like, no, you're never leaving again, you know. <laughs> but, but So he's like, don't cling to me. Um, so that means it was what? A physical resurrection that they experienced based on their story. Now, you might go, well, what if they were lying? We'll deal with that later. But their story is clearly a historical story about a physical resurrection. Then there is the 10 apostles. We read about it in Luke 24. We read about it again in John 20. Let me read to you this story. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace to you. And they freaked out. But they were terrified and frightened. And suppose they'd seen a spirit because they, see, they didn't expect Jesus to rise. They didn't assume, oh, he's risen. They're just like, oh, it's a ghost. Like they don't know what to do. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, was that because he was hungry? Or maybe he was just trying to prove to them that he was real. He'd let them touch him. He shows them his wounds. And he eats in their presence. So he was physically resurrected. That's the account. That's the message we're getting. So he does all those things. What could it be other than a legitimate physical resurrection? Well, you might say a lie. Well, hold on to that thought. Let's come back to that. So Thomas, however, wasn't there. So we get to Thomas, the story of Thomas. He's like, I won't believe unless I see him too. He's ignoring the testimony of the disciples. They're like, we touched him, we handled him. He, he, was, he was here, but he doesn't believe them. So Jesus appears to who we call Doubting Thomas. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Thomas because he wasn't there. He didn't get the same experience the other 10 got. He was, he was going to the bathroom or he was out running an errand or I don't know what he was doing. But here's the passage where Jesus appears to Thomas. John 20, it says, And after eight days, his disciples... Uh, We're again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, specifically Thomas, he goes, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him this glorious statement. He goes, My Lord and my God. Now there's only one subject of that statement. It's Jesus. He is both Lord and and he is God. And Thomas gets it. He goes, whoa, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Now, some have grabbed onto this statement and used it as a case for why we should believe with no evidence. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who believe for no reason. He said, blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Blessed are those who what? Receive the testimony of those who have seen. Thomas, you heard their testimony, but you wouldn't believe it. Hey, I'm glad you believe, but you'd really be blessed if you believed the testimony. And we have good reason to trust their testimony. We'll come to that in a little bit. There was also 500 at once, 1 Corinthians says, this early, early account. And it's written to them, 500 at once that Jesus appeared to. That's a lot of people. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So not only does he say there's 500 people, but I mean, if I was making up a lie, I'd be like, yeah, oh, he appeared to 500 people at once, but you know, they're all like in China now, so you can't talk to them, but take my word for it. He definitely appeared to them. No, he's like saying, hey, go test it. You've got them. They're scattered all over the place. Go talk to them, interview them, ask them. There are many witnesses of Jesus, his resurrection all over the place. It was verifiable because they were still alive. This is what historians look for. They look for this sort of thing where, where it's not a lie written later, but it's something that they're like, hey, come check it out, check it out, check it out. You know, and that's, that gives credibility to it. Also, there's another piece of evidence, and that's that Christianity started in Jerusalem. Because if it was a lie, the worst place to try to start it would be in the city where this fake resurrection happened. It'd be much better to tell them about a distant, faraway land where something awesome happened and you should believe me now. But starting the, 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 the movement of Christianity in Jerusalem where this resurrection didn't happen would be completely impossible. They're like, look, here's his body. Now stop talking. It would just easily fall apart. In Acts 1.3, it says, of Jesus, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It was very important to the believers that Jesus offered evidence of his resurrection. And today we have a good amount of evidence. I mean, I can't believe how much evidence we have 2,000 years later. So number three is independent appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Very few, you might be surprised to hear this, very few disagree with number three. You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who disagrees with number three, that it's an actual fact, that they experienced some kind of appearance of Jesus after his death. The vast majority of historians believe all of these five facts to be true based on normal ways of verifying historical claims. So it's the same reason why I know that George Washington was our, was our first president is the same way that I know that Jesus experienced this. The same way that I know anything historically, we verify with the same principles. So number four, we come to number four. There's only five points, so you guys are doing good. You're doing good. Now you feel like, whew, whew, my brain is getting a little, whew. Actually, you really don't need to remember all this stuff. In fact, if you just gathered one or two things out of this whole message that you were able to share with others, I think that that'd be a success. That'd be a total success. So uh, we never remember everything we hear, which is why we want to hear a lot, so that we'll remember some of it. Right, Steve? <laughs> so the violence endured by the apostles. Here's another photograph of the actual event. Um, Okay, so what you see here is Stephen, the apostle Stephen. And, uh, well, he was more of a deacon. But anyway, he's being attacked. He's being slain. They're going to stone him and kill him. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 7. He proclaims the truth of Christ, and they hate him for it. Hey, man, if you act like Jesus, everyone's going to love you. 
Jesus acted like Jesus, and they killed him. You know, <laughs> but anyway, um, so he gets killed for this. I have to point out though in the picture, I can't find a good picture of a biblical event. I really can't. Um, in this particular uh, artwork, the people killing him are Jewish, but Stephen's a white surfer. And I, I do think that this is really ridiculous. This is really silly. Why? Because this stuff was based on Renaissance stuff. It was based in Europe, and there were, it was nationalistic or whatever. But, but let's just remember, Jesus was Jewish. He probably didn't look much like the images that we see. Um, anywho, so the violence endured by the apostles, when Jesus was alive, and he was with the apostles in their presence, motivating them, the, the commander is here with us, you know? They did not have the courage and conviction to face death. They cowered away. When he was in their presence, they were always, oh, you of little faith. They were weak. They were doubters. Constantly. When he was crucified and they see this horrific thing happening, what did the disciples do? They ran. They scattered. Peter, in particular, actually denied even knowing Jesus three times. He continually kept lying and saying, I don't know Jesus. I don't even know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. After, though, they just got depressed. After the death of Christ, they're down, they're, they're hiding, they're discouraged, they're terrified, they're in a room in a, with a locked door just, just taking cover. What if they come after us now? Like, shh, don't tell them you're here. Like, they were very cautious and careful. They were scared. These are not the kind of people you expect to be bold witnesses of Jesus. Yet, something happened in their lives that changed them from cowering deserters to confident martyrs for their faith in Christ. And it didn't happen until after the death of Christ. This is what we know. The apostles proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus despite incredibly severe and horrible persecutions at total personal sacrifice and even to the point of death, they never recanted their statement. Not just that Jesus was alive. No, no, no. That they had seen him and touched him. That they were witnesses of the fact that he was alive. You might say, though, but Mike, people die for sins, die for lies, all the time. And we have an example in 9-11. These murderers that plow into the World Trade Center. But the difference is these people were not eyewitnesses. They did not know it was a lie. If they were, like for instance, Muhammad may have told people that people who went out to fight for him in the name of Allah would end up with all these virgins in paradise. Right? He may have claimed this, but... Did he ever put his life on the line like that? No way. No way, Jose. Because he knows it's not true, so he's not going to risk his life. He's just going to deceive them into doing it for him. That's what the liar does. He motivates others with his lies, never himself. These people weren't eyewitnesses, but the disciples, (laughs) they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They would have known if it was a lie, so they would not have held to it under pain of death because they had nothing to gain. Can you imagine the conversation between, say, Peter and Paul? Peter meets Paul, and he's like, hey, Paul, I know you've been persecuting Christians, but check this out, I got an idea. We're going to lie and pretend that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul's like, well, well, why would we do that? And he goes, oh, it, for the benefits. Okay, well, what are the benefits? Like, are we going to get rich? And he goes, uh, well, no, so far I'm just, I'm just in total poverty, actually. My lands have been taken away, and uh, no one will give me a job. <laughs> oh, well, uh, so like we're going to get girls, right? No, actually, we have really strict rules about that sort of thing. And, um, and actually, it's, you're, it's, no, no, there won't, there won't be any of that. 
There won't be, okay, but we're going to be like rock stars. We're going to be famous. No, we're going to be more infamous, and people are going to come after you, and they're going to kill you, and they're going to hunt you down. They're going to chase you down. They're going to harm you. They might come after your wife or your children. All right, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's lie. Like, it doesn't make sense, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Who would, who would lie to their own pain for, for, with, with no benefit of any kind? All they gained by this lie was painful deaths. Inc- the incredible deaths and persecution that the, that the disciples endured is... Um, it's a matter of record, actually. We, we have sources on their lives, the Bible, Josephus, the church fathers, we have uh, church traditions that tell us what happened to these men. Matthew was killed with the sword for preaching in Ethiopia, Matthew the disciple. Mark died in Alexandria in northern Egypt after being dragged through the city. Luke was hung to death on an olive tree in Greece. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from the temple wall, and then because he hadn't died yet, they stoned him to death. Philip was hung in Phrygia. Bartholomew was flayed alive. That means he was skinned. All he had to do was say, I take it back. Andrew was bound to a cross with ropes and left to die of exposure. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Thomas was run through with a lance in East India. There's a memorial there today to him. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death by Jews in Thessalonica. Paul finally was beheaded in Rome. And Peter was crucified just as Jesus had prophesied he would be. None of them, not a single one of these men, stopped preaching that they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What does that do to their testimony? It says maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. There is no rational basis for believing they were lying. There's just no rational basis for it. Nobody does this, let alone all of them doing it. It doesn't make sense. So here's another photograph of uh, the stoning of Stephen, but this time I've zoomed up so you could see the other, the other person in the image to your left. That actually is Saul. When Stephen was killed, Saul, the, who became Paul the Apostle, he was there guarding the clothes of the people stoning Stephen so that they wouldn't get blood on their clothes. Paul eventually became his name, but this man was converted from a hater and persecutor of Christians, a murderer of the church. In fact, it says he was trying to destroy the church, his words, into a follower of Jesus. There's other people as well, James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus. These guys, it says that even his brothers did not believe him. Do you know James and Jude? Who wrote the books? James and Jude, these guys, they did not believe Jesus. Before the crucifixion, when Jesus was teaching and working his miracles, Jesus' brothers mocked and ridiculed him. They didn't believe him. They did not believe him. They were, however, after the crucifixion, radical Christians. They're like, you know what? Jesus, I don't believe you're the Messiah. But now that I've seen you die, I think you are. No, this would actually work against against them. But afterwards, they were radical Christians. What would it take to convince you that your brother is the Messiah? They say a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And the reality is that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him because they're his brothers. Because sometimes we don't let our family grow up. Sometimes we don't let our family be really good at stuff. Sometimes we're always a cynic and there's always something wrong with everything they do. Well, what would it take to convince you that your brother was the Messiah? Well, how about you see him alive after his death? How about that? How about you see him physically alive after his death? 
Would that maybe convince you just a little bit? Because that's what the Bible says happened. That's what the historical documents claim happened. Another one is Saul to Paul. So Saul became Paul, and to me, he is the most impressive conversion of all because he was a persecutor of the church. He didn't just sit on the fence and go like, well, I don't believe that. You can believe that. That's fine for you. He was more like, I will kill you. I mean, it was, he was hardcore anti-Christian. Saul went town to town to persecute Christians, and he did the thing that would be done to him later. He would hold them to the wall and be like, you say right now that you don't believe in Jesus or else, and it'd be imprisonment or murder, or we'll drag you and your kids and throw them in jail and, and that sort of thing. He went town to town doing this. He didn't claim that he had a change of heart. Oh, I feel like what I did was wrong. He claimed that he had an experience of seeing Christ alive from the dead. That's what he claimed. Now, historically, we go, yeah, there, he really did exist. There really was a Saul. He really did change to this Paul attitude where he's now following and preaching the Christ whom he persecuted. He really did die for this claim. What changed his mind? I just love that Jesus makes his enemies into his friends. I really do. Do you think your sin is too much? You've gone too far? Paul was murdering Christians. Murder. You think your sin's too far? Paul stands as an example of God's incredible love and forgiveness. He can forgive you. Have you murdered? He can forgive you if you come to Christ. And he'll give you a new name. And he'll make your life new. I love that he does this. The resurrection of Christ is the most reasonable way to account for all this stuff. For one through five, the facts of history. And I will say, hands down, there is not a single rational alternate explanation. Not that people don't try. So let me just review with you, all right? Here's review. You're doing good. You guys are doing really good. I'm proud of you. Except that one guy in the back. Um, <laughs> number one, a death by crucifixion. Historical fact. Number two, ladies find the tomb empty. Historical fact. Number three, independent, separate, different appearances of Jesus alive after death. Historical fact. They saw something. They thought it was Jesus, for sure. There was violence endured by the apostles, and the enemies of Christ were converted. And these five truths, these five accepted facts, lead us to one conclusion, but this does not keep the world from coming up with alternate explanations. So I'm going to actually give you the seven most popular alternate explanations of these facts. Are you ready? All right, the swoon theory. Oh, the swoon theory. If you're a Princess Bride fan, you know this as being mostly dead. <laughs> and that's the theory, is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just swooned. You know, he passed out. He was, he was, he was unconscious, and they looked, and they were like, we think you're dead. Um, and this works especially if the only body you've ever seen has been on TV shows where they're not actually dead bodies. They're just people holding still, and usually not very well. Then there's the twin theory. So, so then Jesus then came back, you know, and, and they were like, oh, he's alive. The twin theory is just that. Either that Jesus had a twin brother or some sort of other substitute, and everybody thought Jesus was crucified, but it wasn't. It was somebody else. Then Jesus shows up later, and he's like, hey, I'm alive. And they're like, hallelujah. And they get saved-ish, right, because it's all fake. And that's the twin theory. This is actually the Islamic theory. This is what is written in the Quran. God would not allow his prophet to be crucified, Muhammad said. This is 450 years later, he says this. Um, and so he says uh, that somebody else was put in his place. So the most popular person to be put in the place is Judas. They think Judas was put in the place of Jesus. Um, anyway, that's the twin theory. Then there's the mass hallucination theory, which I think is the most popular one that I've run into just casually talking to people nowadays, that everyone just hallucinated. 
Then there is the spiritual resurrection theory. Now, I, I mean, I give them credit. They're trying to deal with the evidence, right? At least they're trying to deal with the evidence. The spiritual resurrection theory is the favorite of those um, who want to feel good but deny the resurrection, you know? So then they'll say, hey, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. He had a spiritual resurrection. It only seemed as though he did. He just, it was a visitation. He was a ghost. He was an apparition. Then there is the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory is the idea that they just literally accidentally went to the wrong tomb. So they come the next day, they come, you know, on the Sabbath, they come, uh, they don't come. Then on Sunday, they show up and they're like, hey, we brought the spices and they go to check the tomb and they just walk right past Jesus' tomb and they go to the wrong tomb. Now, they look inside and they go, it's empty. And then Christianity starts. Very kind of a trite uh, story there. Another one's the missing body theory. So it would be it's similar to the wrong tomb theory, but the idea is the same. That um, maybe the tomb never had the body in it, or maybe um, somehow the body got misplaced. Maybe they were going to put it in the tomb, but they took it somewhere else to do something else, and they closed the tomb up. Later when they opened it, they were like, he's gone, and Christianity started. Um, then you've got the conspiracy theory, which is the oldest theory, right? Because the guards were told by the Pharisees, tell them that the body of Jesus was stolen by his disciples. Now, the guards would get the death penalty, but they had the power of the Pharisees to try to protect them. They go, we'll guard you, we'll protect you. And they did have some authority and some power. Um, the conspiracy theory, again, is the oldest one. But as we'll see, all of these things, they fall short. They fall short. The swoon theory, for instance, it falls short of fact number one, a death by crucifixion. It's not said that Jesus got hurt the belief based on history is Jesus died. I mean, blood and water pour out. And the only, the only reason they'd have to record this stuff in the scriptures is because they were simply going, oh, that happened, and writing it down. There's no other motivation seen that's there. The swoon theory, the idea is that after the crucifixion, the beating, the spear, the three days in the tomb, Jesus still wasn't dead. Number three, it fails because independent appearances of Jesus alive after death they see him alive, not barely alive. It's not like Jesus comes to the disciples like, Ugh, water, and they're like, he rose. No, nobody would be convinced of this. This is not convincing. This wouldn't, this wouldn't change their minds. It would not change their minds. He's the risen savior. He's not this beat up, barely alive guy. That happened to Paul, but nobody thought he rose. They just thought, oh, good, you didn't die. It also disagrees with number four. It disagrees with number four, which is the violence endured by the apostles. How inspiring is a half-dead Jesus? All power has been given to me. <laughs> Go and preach my name to the world. Nobody cares about that. You know, you're, Jesus, you lost. Just give up, you know. They're not going to follow him to the death saying, oh, he rose from the dead. That just doesn't make sense. And how, by the way, would this convert the enemies of Christ exactly? Really, this isn't going to convert anybody. So this disagrees with four of the facts that we have. Um, then you have, oh, so I'm going to give that a little slash. Goodbye. So the twin theory shows up. The twin theory, this idea that there was a twin or some sort of substitute person. There's a few problems with this. Um, number three, the wounds that Jesus experienced were still seen on him after his resurrection. 
They saw the hands. He goes, Thomas, put your hand on my side. Look, it's me. Look, it's me. Not only is it me, the same one, Jesus, you saw on the cross, but I am the same Jesus who experienced the cross. Look at the wounds. So the appearances of Jesus involved that as well. Also, um, the, uh, the time that they spent with Jesus, the disciples, for three plus years, they were with Jesus day in and day out. They knew about the weird mole on the back of his neck. They knew about, you know, whatever, that, that like one eye didn't open as much as the other one. I mean, they knew all this stuff about Jesus because they were with him every day, living, eating, breathing, sleeping with him, everything, all day long. That's all they did was hang out together. When he said, come follow me, they left their jobs and they just started following him everywhere. So he travels around preaching and they, they get to know him. So they're not going to be tricked easily by something like this. Not to mention, Jesus' mom probably would know if that wasn't Jesus. Moms, don't you think you know? We have some moms at Hosanna who have twins. The moms can tell before anybody else can tell, actually. So, anyhow, um, the wounds, all that stuff, as well as the fact that um, Jesus' brothers were converted, number five, enemies of Christ converted. Jesus' brothers are going to know whether that's Jesus or not that was with the wounds and with the evidence. So that, that falls short as well. The twin theory fails. Um, the mass hallucination theory is the next one. There's several problems with this. Um, some of them are with the facts, like number three. There were independent appearances of Jesus alive after death. Multiple different people saying, I saw him here, I saw him here, I saw him here. But there were not only visual, there were audio. audio there were, uh, what's the term? Auditory, thank you. They were auditory, but they were also tactile. They were kinesthetic. I want to sound smart after I couldn't remember the word auditory. Um, <laughs> and they touched him. They felt him, that he ate, and there was evidence. There was a lot of other evidence. It wasn't just like a hallucination, right? But they were also independent. And here's the biggest problem with the hallucination theory. Mass hallucinations don't happen. They don't exist. There's plenty of case studies on hallucinations, as if you even have to do a case study to figure this out. If you all take LSD, you don't all see the same magic butterfly. You don't. You don't all experience the same thing. And yet they all experienced the same thing. And of course, there was no drug use involved. No reason to think there was. But the mass hallucination thing is just, it's, it's funny that it's the most popular current thing, but it's like one of the most pathetic because it would take a miracle for a massive group of people to have a hallucination like that. And if we're going to appeal to miracles, why don't we just say he rose? Then you have... The spiritual resurrection theory, the idea that Jesus didn't actually die and rise physically, he rose spiritually. There's a bunch of problems with this. One is the fact that the Jewish word resurrection means physical resurrection. And you have to literally go in and change the dictionary to try to get a spiritual term out of resurrection. This is, they thought they would physically rise. Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. He rose. and All the terminology specifically means physical. You can't fit it in there. Also, ladies find the tomb empty, number two. If it was a spiritual resurrection, then where is his body? It would have still been there. There'd be no empty tomb. It also disagrees with number three, independent appearances of Jesus alive after death. The appearances involve physical, tactile things, not a spiritual thing. In fact, he goes way out of his way to prove he's not a ghost. And number four, the violence endured by the apostles. If the apostles simply thought that Jesus appeared to them as an apparition. They wouldn't go around preaching the resurrection, preaching that your resurrection comes through his resurrection, 
and then dying for it. It just doesn't make any sense. That theory just doesn't hold any water. Then you've got the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb. I think that number two disagrees with this one. Ladies found the tomb empty. Okay, if guys were driving, we would have found the wrong tomb. <laughs> but with the lady, if it was me, I would have just kept driving right past talking to my buddies, not thinking about where I'm going. But my wife would be like, no, it's this one here. <laughs> so that right there. But in addition to that, you've got number three, the independent appearances of Jesus alive after death. Um, if you have a wrong tomb, then you still have a dead body. And so you wouldn't have any appearances of Christ. You wouldn't have the tactile stuff. You wouldn't have any of those things. You also wouldn't have the disciples preaching the resurrection, going from cowards to bold witnesses because people couldn't find the body. Plus, just because you have the wrong tomb doesn't mean you always have to have the wrong tomb. You just go pull out the body and show it to people and Christianity ends. It also disagrees with number five, that those who were violent to the gospel were converted by seeing Jesus. That was their claim. And that doesn't correspond with a, a, a wrong tomb. So that one falls short. The missing body theory fails for the same reasons as the wrong tomb theory. It's all the same ones. The appearances um, wouldn't account for the missing body. The, the violence endured by the apostles doesn't make sense to the missing body. And enemies of Christ don't get converted because you can't find his dead body. And finally, we get to the conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory, the oldest one... And that's what usually they come down to because the historical evidence is so strong for the claims that they saw Jesus that eventually people just go, well, maybe they lied. Maybe it was all just a conspiracy. But again, that just doesn't make any sense. A conspiracy for what purpose? A conspiracy to what end? To gain what? All they did was give. They got nothing. They got nothing. I mean, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, he got, I think it was 19 wives, some of them as young as 14. Some of them were wives that belonged to other men, and he told them, God will bless you if you give me your wife. If Pastor Gary said that to me, <laughs> we can see clearly that guys like Muhammad and Joseph Smith and, and, and these types of false teachers clearly had a ton of personal gain for the lies they preached. But the disciples lost everything, everything because of their faith in Jesus, which is why Paul says, if Jesus isn't risen, I'm the most pitiful man around because I've given everything for Christ. They truly believed that they'd seen the risen Savior. And to think that this is a conspiracy um, is, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, the, it's not written like a conspiracy. The fact that ladies find the tomb empty, this embarrassing stuff, that's not how you write a conspiracy. You're not going to convince people when you tell them ladies found Jesus' tomb and that the disciples didn't believe him. Why should I believe him if you didn't believe him? Number four, violence endured by the apostles wouldn't happen if it was a conspiracy. They would give up. Some of them at least would give up. Maybe one crazy guy in the lot wouldn't, but the rest would certainly give up the conspiracy. And number five, the enemies of Christ aren't going to be converted by a conspiracy. They were converted by seeing the living Jesus alive from the dead. So all of these things, they fall short of the accepted facts of history there is only really one rational explanation for the evidence. Have you guessed what it is? Jesus is alive. I think that this is stinking amazing. <laughs> Jesus is alive. And God saw fit to preserve evidence for 2,000 years so that our hypercritical 
culture would be able to look at it and go, wow, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than there is for almost any events that happened in ancient times. It's almost like someone did it on purpose. God is so wonderful. Jesus is alive. Now, there's actually other facts. I've just given you five points, but there's other things that support the resurrection. I don't have time to go over it. There's prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he came. There's the miraculous rise of Christianity. There's the influence of Jesus after his death. No human has had influence like this after their death. There are the countless people who still claim he's alive. I have experienced the living Jesus in my life. I add my testimony to the disciples that he's alive. And how many others do? Oh, but doesn't Buddhism and Hindu and Islam, don't they all say the same thing? No, none of them say that. Just Christianity. There's also the evidence of the changed lives that people have, which they credit to Jesus and no one else. Jesus changed my life. Now, if I told you I went to AA and it changed my life, you probably wouldn't doubt me. But when I say Jesus changed my life, and then you could interview my family and go, yep, his life was totally changed. And you're like, still don't believe it. Okay, but that's, that gets me to my next point. What reason could anyone have after all that for not believing in Jesus? There's only one reason. They decided ahead of time, God doesn't do that. God didn't do that. God can't do that. Jesus didn't rise. They start believing he didn't rise, and they conclude he didn't rise. No evidence would convince this person they're just like the duck-billed platypus. Let me explain. <laughs> Here's some cute duck-billed platypi for you. Aren't they adorable? These are neat creatures, really neat creatures. Do you know they close their nose and their eyes and they hunt using electricity underwater? That's just cool. So anyway, the duck-billed platypus was discovered in 1798 by English explorers, right? They sent sketches back to England saying, hey, check this out. Look at this amazing critter we found. It's not a mammal. It's not a reptile. It's not an amphibian. It doesn't fit any of our classifications, so they sent it in, and they said, that's a hoax. You didn't find that. Funny joke, haha. So then they said, okay, fine. We'll send a, a pelt, an actual physical pelt of a duckbill platypus, and they sent it in, and they said, no, th- th- I think, see these marks? I think it was sewn together this way. I don't think this thing's real. And they didn't believe it. So finally, the explorers came with a live duckbill platypus back to England, and they showed it to the people, and many still denied it. Why did they deny it? Because they had these categories in their mind. Mammal, fowl, right? amphibian, reptile. Like, this doesn't fit. So it must not exist, even though they're looking at it. This is why some people reject Jesus. They've simply decided ahead of time, God can't do that, God doesn't do that, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. No matter what the evidence you present them, they will always come back with some weird thing. They'll prefer, prefer a, um, an alternate explanation of hallucinations or who knows what over Jesus raising from the dead, no matter how bad it is, because they've just decided this doesn't happen. It's just silliness. There is great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. He is alive. And as we head into our Easter season, I wanted to encourage us, the congregation at Hosanna, to say, hey, let's be bold witnesses of the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you can only remember a handful of the things I said, but that's something you could share with somebody, isn't it? Maybe you can only remember one of the points. Hey, man, they died for that belief in Jesus. So you think that they were lying? Why'd they die for it? Maybe that's the only point you remember. But I think it's worth mentioning to somebody. I think it really is. And Easter coming up, it's a great, easy way to get on the topic. So do you believe Jesus rose, really rose? And just ask people. I always start with questions because people always like, 
talking <laughs> more than they like listening. So, um, As you go to celebrate Easter, if you can remember even just a couple of these things, I hope you enter into some conversations with coworkers or friends or family and just hit them up and be like, hey, if it's not true, why do you think they died for it? You know, and get people thinking. Because there are those who hold, hold out faith in Christ for intellectual reasons. But as, I've, as you study and you research and you get into these things, you find out there are no intellectual reasons to hold out faith in Christ. There's just intellectual ignorance. Now, we can go up and we can try to educate people and tell them the truth of Christ. But what it will ultimately come down to, and what it comes down to for each of us, is will you repent of your sin and put your faith in the Savior? Because all the intellectual stuff, in fact, you can see all this evidence and and if, and if I could speak to, say, the, the critic or the skeptic in the room today, you may hear all this stuff and go, Mike, if everything you say is true, then yeah, yeah, Jesus is risen from the dead, if it's true, but I, I'm not sure that it's true. Well, don't rest until you look it up on your own, please. But I'll tell you this, the reason why you'll still hold out faith, even after you research it, even after you find out it's true, is because you don't want to repent of your sin, because it is not our brains that keep us from God, it is our hearts loving sin more than the Savior. So I counsel you, please, repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ and you'll be forgiven and you'll have eternity in heaven. And if you don't, you will have eternity in hell and you will not be forgiven. It couldn't be a bigger deal. It couldn't be a bigger deal. And the love of Jesus Christ is such that he came and he took your sins and mine on himself on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Now, if we reject that and we spit in the face of God, then, then woe to us, you know, that's on us. But there is no good reason not to. There is no good reason not to. Not that I'm aware of. And, um, yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the truth of Christ risen from the dead. And we celebrate that this Easter. We're just looking forward to getting together and, and worshiping you together, Lord, and celebrating the, the risen Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have these evidences and have careful arguments and thoughtful things to say to people about Jesus, but also, Lord, that we would also just simply have your spirit giving us the ability to preach the gospel, to just tell people that ultimately it's about sin and it's about repentance and forgiveness. It is about faith and trust. And so, Lord, we ask that you would let us be a light to this dark world, because look at what's going on around us. Lord, we're so glad you're coming. And let us be a light to get our families ready, our friends ready. Let us be bold. Let us know that the violence endured by the apostles, we might experience some of that if we live for you, and that's okay. Because Jesus is alive, and our hope is not in this life, but it is with you for eternity, Lord. So we love you, and we ask for your blessings. We pray for our pastor, Pastor Gary, that you'd bless him and heal him, and just bring him back to us in full health with the anointing of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
Chastisement of 